forever. Dog. Hey everyone, you're listening to the Writers Panel podcast. Thank you for listening. I appreciate it. On this podcast, we talk about the business and process of writing mostly television with mostly television writers. My name is Ben Blacker. I'm the creator and host of this show. I myself am a television writer and a writer of other things. You may have seen my name on Supernatural, on Puss in Boots, as well as some other series. Most recently, you can find the Audible original series Cut and Run, which my writing partner and I have written. It's about the relationship woes of best friends who happen to be kidney thieves. It's available at audible.com slash cut and run. Thank you for listening to the show. If you enjoy the show, please leave a review on iTunes. That's always very helpful for us. Also, please follow me on Twitter at Ben Blacker, like the color, only more so. And let me know who else you would like to see on this show. What are you watching on television? What's getting you excited or inspired? And we'll try to get those creators or at least someone from the show to talk about TV because that's what we love to talk about. Here's the theme song. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight, or whenever the time is right. It's the Writer's Panel with Ben Blacker, and it's starting now. Oh, yeah. And this is how it starts. We're doing it. We're doing it. I'm excited. Thank you all for being here in your homes. Uh, <laughs> this is unusual. Uh, this is the one of the first times I've done these over Zoom, so thank you for bearing with us. Uh, what I'm going to do is the way we always start, which is to go around and ask you to introduce yourselves so the listener knows what your voice sounds like. Tell us your name and somewhere that they may have seen your name on a TV or movie screen. And Dana, let's start with you. Uh, my name is Dana Fox, and um, you may have seen my name on on the TV screen. It would have been Ben and Kate or my new show, Home Before Dark. Um, mostly I've done movies and... Uh, I would say maybe how to be single. Um, maybe if stuff got weird in like the early aughts, you watched like the wedding date or couples retreat and then regretted it. Um, but my name is on some of those. And my name is also not on a lot of things I've worked on, which I actually prefer. So we can talk about that later. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Thank you. Uh, Jeff. Hey, I like that too. Uh, my name is Jeff Howard. I am the other guy voice, just to make it slightly easier. Um, TV-wise, I worked on Haunting of Hill House, uh, the first season. I uh, just finished um, a show called Midnight Mass that Mike Flanagan's going to go direct all of seven episodes of as soon as they, people do that kind of thing again. Uh, and um, another Netflix series that I'm apparently not allowed to say the name of because they are waiting to announce it. But uh, it's, a, it's another big franchisey one. Um, and a couple of movies, uh, mostly directed by... Uh, by Flanagan, um, but a couple of different things coming on the way soon. Great, thank you. Jessica. I'm Jessica Amento. I'm getting to be talking to both of you because I'm a fan of both of your work. Um, and you haven't seen my name on TV yet, but if I get lucky, then you'll see it um, on the CW. I have a show in development there called Obsessed. Awesome. Yeah, um, I want to get into that and I want to talk about some of the development stuff that you all have been through. But before we get to that, um, as I was saying, we're recording this on just a couple days before it's being released, uh, which is not always the case with this podcast. So it's an opportunity for us to talk about how things are going. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and and a, a couple of us chatted about this earlier on, but it's it's a weird time to be a creative person. It's a weird time to be a person with deadlines. 
um, or even without deadlines. It's all weird. Uh, so I want to hear about, you know, the structure of your days. Um, and if you are on deadline, what are you getting done and how are you getting it done? And if you're not, what are you getting done and how are you getting it done? Um, and Dana, again, let's start with you. I mean, it's been super weird for me. Most of it is weird because I have three young children. I have seven, five, and four. Um, and I thought I was very intelligent. Um, like I went to college, then I went to more college. I got a lot of degrees from colleges. Um, but you don't really confront how truly dumb you really are until you're trying to homeschool your small children. And um, <laughs> speaking of which, <laughs> honey... You guys, this is what is happening. This is the perfect time for my child to walk in (laughs) and interrupt our amazing podcast. This is what's happening is that (laughs) I'm trying to do stuff and then my children are walking in. Um, You should try the garage. Can you go? There's there's no such thing at my house. There's nowhere to hide, my friend. Um, My only safe space. You have to go ask daddy, baby. I'm on a work thing. I know, honey. Go ahead. Go ask daddy. You guys, this is what it's going to be like the whole time in my own life. I can't take it. Um, so yeah, so that is the perfect way of explaining what my life is like. So every time I try to put a thought together, um, a child walks in the door and tells me that some they've got some sort of injury, which by the screaming and the sobbing seems like it's going to be like, we're going to have to rush out. There's going to be some sort of tourniquet involved. It's usually a scratch. Um, that requires a Band-Aid. And so that interrupts the flow. So it's been really, really hard to get um, a lot of thoughts put together in a row. Um, But also it's been weirdly wonderful because a lot of the things that I've been working so hard my whole life. I've been, I've had a job since I was like 11 years old. (laughs) Like, I don't think I was allowed to technically have a job when I was 11 years old, but I have them. Um, And so I've been sort of a workaholic my entire life. And I have been saying for a long time that I wanted to sort of slow down for a minute and spend a little bit more time with my kids during this very like pivotal time in their growth. And I don't think I would have been capable of actually doing that. So it was good that it was done to me. Um, because I'm actually really enjoying it. And they're kind of magical. Uh, I try to begin every day by looking instead of going on a deep dive down the news rabbit hole of sadness and suffering. I try to start the day with doing one good thing for people who seem to need it right now. So whether that's donating money for masks um, or, you know, sending food to cedars, uh, just even if it's a little thing, it just sets me off on such a better foot. And so I just sort of start off the day with a sense of perspective. And after you do something like that and you think about the people who have it so much worse than you do at that moment, everything in your day is better because you're like, dude, I'm so lucky. Everything is great. Um So that's kind of how I've been structuring it. And my husband and I are trying to split things up and, you know, I just, it's really hard. Um, And it's, I would say before we shut down, I could read and correct and work on and rewrite like 67 scripts. I would work on two cuts. I would approve 300 costumes. I would, uh, you know, answer 400 questions in a given day. And now I'm like, whew, I read that one script. I read the stars of that one script and boy, oh boy do I need a nap? So it's, it's, it's been weird. I'm really tired all the time. Um, so hopefully that means I'm not actually clinically depressed. It's just, it's a weird time as you say. So. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, it's, it's come up before, but giving ourselves 
permission to not be creative powerhouses right now uh, goes a long way. Uh, Jeff, you've been banished to the garage for this conversation, <laughs> but I assume usually you are... Not for having it, just so you know. I'm allowed to have the conversation. It's just, I, I came out here to make it more quiet. You have a nice a garage. Impression. It's a nice <laughs> garage. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but I never guessed. How, how has it been for you this, these past couple months? And are you in progress on a project right now that you are meant to be working on? Uh, yeah. Um, finished a movie. Fin during this time, I was working on a room, that, uh, that Netflix room. And we switched to Zoom for the last couple of weeks, um, which uh, just ended, I think, about a week ago, last Friday. It's a really good one. It's a really big one. We were really having a good time. It has an awful lot, unfortunately, to do with all the shit that's unraveling at this exact moment in the world. So that was a little uh, uncomfortable. Um, but uh, I finished the movie with Alexander Aja for Amblin. That's uh, like a, it's in this thing called Control Tech, which is like choose your own adventure for theatrical movies. And uh, we turned in our 276 page draft like two weeks ago, which is just like all these absurd branches. And uh, I could send you some pictures of the things if anybody wants to check it out. It's just these crazy index cards branching all over like spider webs climbing on the walls. Question I'm about that. As so do I. fascinated. <laughs> what? Like, how are you, how many different ways uh, do, can it go? Is it, are they going to release multiple like movies of like the same movie in theaters or? How does that work? These guys created this software called Control Tech. The idea is you can sit in a movie theater with the with your phone and you have an app on your phone and you just make A, B choices uh, oh. throughout the movie. And they just lead you to completely different, like we didn't do the, sorry, the, you know, the Bandersnatch re repeats and sort of what we kind of looked at as a little bit of, of cheats. We kind of do everything straightforward without sort of being reborn like in a video game. And um, it just, it's a multiple branch narrative. There's it's it's subdivided into so many ways that according to the software, there's like 2.4 million different variations that you could watch this movie. So uh, yeah, so we'll see. I, I just feel bad because Aja has to go shoot this thing and like somehow maintain all of that stuff in his head. Um, and we tried to help him, you know, he as a co-writer tried to help himself as director by keeping things streamlined in a way so that sometimes it's where you can have similar scenarios, but just switch out actors or you can have you know, yeah, there's just a lot of tricks we tried to do to make it make sure that you could double and triple using time and sets. That is so cool. Totally it's fun. Weird. It gets pretty dark. <laughs> so, we'll, <laughs> we'll see. But also pretty moves. light? Uh, no, no, it's pretty <laughs> relentlessly a dark ride. Um, I loved working with Aja. I like working with directors a lot. Like uh, in movies, it just makes it very real, you know, to work with a director. And so, uh, you know, they all have really wonderful, fantastic ideas and they just need uh, somebody who can make it make sense and add connective tissue and make you care all the way through and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, and I want to talk about that um, for all of you in a little bit, but but just to to follow, follow up on this before we move on. Um, so you ended this Netflix show that you can't tell us about, but uh, you Sorry. ended... No, no, not at all. I, we know how Netflix is. <laughs> Um, but you ended this doing a virtual room for the last few weeks. How, how did that work for you? What was, the, what was the vibe of it? How did people adjust? Everybody got used to it pretty quickly. Um, nobody really had any complaints. The single best thing about it is I don't think there's a human being who can sustain on a Zoom longer than two hours. So 
I've always been one of those people that is like, you know, you hear those, like I've been in three rooms now and I've really enjoyed every one of them. And I'm sorry to say this publicly, but every single one of them has been like a, like a 10 to three kind of a get together, hang, eat, talk, break stuff down, roll on home before traffic starts kind of day. Uh, and I think that makes writers so happy that the stuff is so much better because you hear the nightmare rooms. Um, certainly about not any rooms that I ever self-sabotaged interviews in, but uh, if you, uh, you hear about the nightmare rooms where you're there until, you know, like 12 and 14 hours a day and stuff like that. And it's like, I just never, you know, I would definitely Larry David out seven hours into any situation, <laughs> explode and leave. Yeah, I'm a big believer that you sort of have to let human beings teach you how they can be the most productive in the service of the thing. I'm like a big napper. I get so tired. And I just think it's because I sort of spaz out. I burn really brightly. And then I'm like, oh, I gotta sleep or else the rest of the day doesn't work. So I sort of just a long time ago, I started like following my own. I think this is probably a terrible word to say it sounds very like sort of LA but like I started following like my own like biorhythms and um in the sort of in the service of just getting more out of myself um and so I know that I'm a morning person and so I like to go into work before everybody else gets there because the room you know would start around 10 and I like to go in much earlier get as much done as I could then I would go in I'd come in, I would sort of say, Hey, like, let's all talk about X, Y, or Z today. And then I would sort of let everybody do the thing. And then I would come back in and visit and sort of say, okay, Hey, where are we on that? Um, or maybe I would just even wait till the end of the day to come back in. Cause there's a lot of other like show running that actually has to occur. That isn't just the sitting in the room stuff. So for me, it was really great to have really strong writers in the room who could continue to lead the conversation and really get a ton of stuff done. And then I'm like you, I just want everyone, you know, I wanted to be home at, you know, let's say 530 to see my kids, because otherwise I don't see my kids, you know, and I'm their mom, which is, you know, I'm, I'm the mom. Um, and so I wanted to be home to see them. And so I wanted everybody else to sort of be able to get home to see their families and you know, I was kind of all about like, hey, whenever you're ready to like go home and do a little more work from home, go do that. You know, if you're a night person, give me your best stuff at night and then come in later in the morning. I don't care. Like, I don't care what time you get there. I just want the stuff to be super productive. I want everyone to be working at their best. So I was always all about like, you know, hey, tell me what kind of a day you want to have. And then can we try and structure it so that everybody gets that, that version of themselves? Because like you said, you're just like way more productive, you're happier. Um, you know, people tend to be way more psyched to actually be doing the work when they're doing the work. And I think there's a diminishing return situation where you sit there too long, and all of a sudden, like, you start going around and around, like when you were describing all the different note cards and all the different versions in the Choose Your Own Adventure, I feel like I would do that about like one plot line. <laughs> like if it goes on too long, I would go like 400 different places and I'd be like, nah, let's go back to that other place that we started from. And so sometimes you, you start to feel that diminishing returns moment and you go, okay, let's call it, you know, time to go home, time to start over tomorrow. Um, but yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with the, with the 10 to... I mean, I, I can't say three, like, let's be real. It was the first year. <laughs> mine, mine was a first year show. So it was like definitely more like 10 to five, 10 to seven kind of situation. Yeah. I luckily also had two director driven shows. So the director was always in the room and you kind of knew what was going to be done. So we always knew, you know, like instead of having to pitch a million alternatives, we always sort of knew where we needed to land. So 
That's what helps right. with that. I, I totally expect that experience to never continue and to someday explode in my face. So, <laughs> um, I want to pick up on talking about those rooms uh, in a second, but Jessica, tell us about how your days are looking. We know, I know you're on deadline uh, for your pilot. Does that put pressure on or does that actually, knowing you have that work to do, does it take it off? It's funny because I'm actually my day-to-day -day doesn't actually look too different from how it was looking before. So, um, I mean, the one difference is that now I'm writing at home and my boyfriend and I, he's an artist, he has to be in the other room working. So we're learning how to like work under the same roof. Cause prior to this, I was like very much go to a coffee shop every day and write, like that's where I do my best work. But, um, I mean, in terms of like, I'm not on a deadline in the way that I was in the fall through pilot you know through the normal development season because ours got carried over to off season so i'm sort of but i always put the pressure on myself anyway to turn things around as quickly as possible but um i'm grateful to have something to focus on um jessica they they did a study i just want to support you in any way i can they did a study because i'm a big coffee shops person myself um, and they did a study that apparently people are like their most productive when that exact kind of sound is in the background. So it's like, it's just enough white noise. It's like clanging. It, it's variable. It changes. It isn't repetitive. It's kind of like on and off and different sounds and they come and they go. So you can actually download. <laughs> I have oh my it, gosh. The sound of a coffee shop and you can put it on in a little thing in the background of your house. <laughs> And then you can put on your noise canceling headset. God knows you still need that. And you can pretend you're actually at a coffee shop in your own home and see this... what it does to your mood and your productivity. I give you this gift because I love Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Seriously, that's such a good life hack. Wow. Because I've listened to white noise, you know. But... Yeah, it doesn't work the same way for me. I mm -mm. listen to white noise and it's like, and it's nap time. You yes. know, it's just, yes. that does not do it for me. So yeah, I have a million different life hacks because I feel like probably 90% of why I have done okay in my career is because I, I have a really strong work ethic and I work really hard and I never give up and I, I'm constantly analyzing my own process to see if I can make my own process better. Yes. And I have so many weird hacks for writing that are so specific to just me that when I start telling people about them, I can see them start to look at me like I'm crazy. Um, Let's get into it. <laughs> this is, um, this, this do does, this. it's one of my favorite things to talk about on the podcast is everybody's specific writing processes. Um, you know, whether you're writing for yourself, whether you're writing for something that is going to be produced, um, I'm really curious to know, given your druthers, you know, outside of our current weird situation, what does your process look like when you're working on a script? And Dana, let's hear some of the weird stuff. Oh boy, does it get strange. Um, I would say <laughs> that it's different for movies and for television. So um, I can sort of speak to the television side of it first. Uh, you know, I've been lucky enough to work with some really incredible writers in my rooms and they have written beautiful drafts and, uh, and then I always kind of get in there and I do what I'm going to do with them. Um, but for me, the process of writing in television, especially because the turnaround is much quicker in terms of when you've written it and when it's getting made, it's all in the service of making the thing. 
I used to, when I worked in features, it was all about the script itself because it could be so long before they would ever make the movie that you were like, I just want this beautiful, like hermetically sealed object that I can be proud of. And then it was a trap. It's, I was never proud of it. So, but that more on that later. Um, <laughs> so the way that I've done it in television is I've realized that because there is so much work to do, you have to sort of figure out your best version of that, your quickest version that doesn't decrease quality at all. Um, so what I usually would do when I would, let's say I would have three scripts I had to read and, and rewrite. Um, I put them into PDFs. I put them into my phone in this program called Voice Dream, um, V-O-I-C-E-D-R-E-A-M. And I would have it read the scripts out loud to me over and over and over again. And I programmed it to have a British male voice, not because uh, of anything other than the <laughs> fact that the, the fact that he was a British guy made him sound a lot less like a robot. Um, so then I was like, ah, oh, this British guy is reading me my script right on Benedict Cumbersnatch. Like, let's do this. <laughs> so he would just read me my scripts over and over again. And this is where it gets super weird. So I, sometimes I like to walk around while it's happening, but really it's all about hearing the pacing because if you sort of speed it up to the place at which your brain can still understand it, it would take about 30 minutes or less to listen to a script that was a 45 to 55 page script. And so when I heard something I didn't like, I paused it for a second. I screenshot it on my phone and I circled the thing in red with my finger. And I like kind of scribbled some little thing that would help me remember what I didn't like about it. Saved it to photos, immediately keep going. Listen to the entire script very quickly, do that for the whole script. And then I would just pull up my iPad and I'd be like, oh great, the script is in front of me. And here's the 25 pictures I took of the stuff I don't like that I want to fix. Boom, fix it, nailed it. Save it again, PDF, boom, do it again. And I would do that many times because for me, the iterative process is where I start to really hear things that I never saw when I was looking at it as a script. And also I was just so exhausted that I would like turn on my computer and like a script would come up and I'd be like, like just exhausted. So somewhere the, the auditory part of my brain just worked better. And the visual part of my brain, I'm a very visual person. So the visual part of my brain, like really liked the pictures of the thing with the circles and the bear. So that was super helpful. Um, and then <laughs> that was one of my super crazy ones. And when I would start to do it, like half the writers would just leave the room because they, it would really upset them so much <laughs> to like, hear the script spoken by this British dude. Um, so that was actually a really amazing uh, hack that I use a lot. And the other thing I discovered that I really like uh, is colors. And um, color really just like hits my brain in like a real like dopamine, like oxytocin kind of way where I would just see it and be like, ooh, it's pink. Ooh, it's orange. So sometimes when we would be working on a script and we would be trying to break it and figure it out, instead of writing the script chronologically, we would break it down into people's storylines. So Hildy would have a color. It would be pink. Izzy would have a color that would be orange. Matt, the dad, would have the color that would be purple. Uh, blue for the mom or whatever it is. And then we would all go right and then we would put it in that color and then we would slot it in in the basic order that we had kind of like thought that it would go in. And then all of a sudden at the end, I would be left with this like gorgeous rainbow of awesomeness. But what it does is you look at it and you go, oh, wait, like Hildy's our access character. The audience is seeing the world through Hildy's eyes. And how come there's no red anywhere in here? If Hildy is or pink, if Hildy's pink, like 
why, why do we go 20 pages without touching base with her? That's weird. And I wouldn't have noticed it, but I saw the colors and I was like, well, there's a color missing here. So it really helped with structure. Um, and it also just like made me happy while I was doing it. Cause half the tricks are just about like waking yourself up, making yourself happy and leaving enough gas in the tank every night that you want to go back to it in the morning. Absolutely. It makes a lot of sense. And it's not, you know, dissimilar to how we hear about rooms breaking character arcs on different colored cards or something like that. So you can visualize the structure of the thing. I think that's really neat. It's really smart. Uh, it, it, what your weirdness works. I, I mean, it works for me, but uh, I, I might have realized that I'm slightly dyslexic. I got to a very old age before I figured this out, by the way, um, where I was looking at my Kindle about a year ago and I was reading, and I'm a terrible reader. Like I would read these things and take me four times as long to read a script as anybody else. And I always thought, why am I such a slow reader? And I rationalized it that I really, I'm very thoughtful when I read, I really work through it. I really think. And, uh, I was reading Kindle one night and there was a little font thing that says Dix dyslexic open. And I was like, Oh, Hey friend, what's that click? And all of a sudden I was like, Bush! and I could read 20 times as fast as I ever mm. could. And I was like, Oh, I'm dyslexic. Okay. Well, that's a fun story. Glad I went to Stanford. I mean, I still thrived. Like I made it, I did. Okay. But can you imagine what I could have done if I had known that? I was really Another young. Kindle diagnosis. They're out there saving <laughs> the world. One right Dr. Time. Kindle. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, Jeff, what does your process look like? Um, you know, you've written, you've collaborated with Mike Flanagan a number of times, who I'm such a huge fan of all of his work. Um, uh, and I really loved Hill House. So you've worked in the room as well. What does it look like when you're working on a feature, though? That's what I'm really curious about. If you mean with somebody or alone, because they're a little different, but uh, well, that's, not too that's bad. Actually, what yeah. I'm curious about is like how much when you're collaborating with someone, how much of right. it is sitting in the same room, and when you're working on your own, how much of it is going to the director, like Alexander, who you know you're going to be working with. Huh. Yeah, in the early days when Flanagan and I would do stuff together, I've, I'm always the guy that wakes up at about five thirty just because I can't help it, and uh, there's just not you know, no matter what time I go to bed, I wake up at about five thirty. So usually every day I sit outside in the back of the house and work from like six to 10 in the morning, like just pretty continuously with no like pre-planned, you know, just like no, you know, no thought about what it would be, just sort of whatever you're going to get into in the day and just sort of like stream of conscious your way through stuff. And uh, for movies, we would always start and I always start alone with like a three pager, like just literally slugs of what every bit of the movie is from the beginning to the end, because a lot of times people have the, you know, especially when you're starting out, you'll sit down and you'll write a act one in extreme detail and write a bunch of scenes and then you'll get to about page 34 and you'll be like, I have no idea what's going to happen now. Like, you know, like you're, you've gone to final draft too early. <laughs> like, I always like to, you know, do this three page thing, force yourself all the way through to the to an ending, you know, just in beats without putting too much elbow grease into the individual scenes at all, like trying not to even make them compound sentences. And it usually works out to be about three pages, whatever it's going to be. And then uh, you put it away for a while and you come back to it and you kind of blow that one up into like a 10 or 12 pager where you add, you know, much more detail, kind of the level of detail you would do if you're going to pitch it, you know. Um, but still everything broken down into like four, sort of do a four quadrant instead of a three act structure. Um, a long time ago, Flanagan and I figured out the system that we used all through the early days together where it was like... Uh, instead of three acts like everybody does we broke it down to the four quadrants and like the first quadrant was all the stuff you know from act one like 25 pages you know the person their personal problem their global problem and then the second one was like the you know that second 25 pages assuming that all horror movies land about 100 pages 
the second 25 pages was basically they got a personal problem, but the world problem, so to speak, is sort of overtaking them. And they fail completely at the world problem because they're so obsessed with their personal problem, they can't really get ahead. And then at midpoint, the, th the two things kind of slam together. So that in like the third quadrant, it turns around and they basically, they put aside their entire uh, personal problem to focus only on the world problem. And they come like so close to solving it before it all dissolves and falls apart. But then when they rise from the ashes for the final part, the fourth quadrant or the third act, whatever you want to call it, the whole idea is that they've inadvertently solved their personal problem to a certain degree by just putting it aside and focusing on the world problem. And that allows them to start on the world problem from the very beginning again and go all the way through and sort of like mostly win, but land in a bittersweet kind of ending, uh, which is where most of the movies seem to land. So uh, we just... <laughs> I had never heard it broken down that way. And I think it's absolutely brilliant. Honestly, um, you know, having worked in some on some horror stuff, I think horror films especially are so difficult in the second act. Um, and hearing about the personal and then putting the personal aside is really clarifying. Was this a trial and error discovery or is this just, you know, was, did it feel um, natural to you and Mike? You know, um, very early on, did a, a, an extreme analysis of like the top 25 grossing movies of all time and the top 25 AFI list, you know, and broke them all down. And there was a day where I realized that like Schindler's List and Tommy Boy had the same kind of flow. And it was like, oh shit, you know, like <laughs> these really, they're all the same, you know what I mean? And, uh, you know, that it, it, it's not, and look, I think the thing is you want that in the background, but you never want anybody to feel any of that stuff. The whole thing is, you know that, but hopefully nobody else can figure it out because you're hiding it with all the fun stuff that people get sucked into and pay attention to, you know? Um, but that's, we would do a three pager or I would do, you know, a three and then like a 10 to 12 and then finally go back and do like a 25 page outline that would have single space, like word document that would have like dialogue and setting, you know, everything in it that like, if you were ever hit by a bus, somebody could find this thing and write the script from it, you know? Um, and it made it really easy when you go to sit down in final draft at last and you have this 25 page thing. It's always like there's some other person sitting there giving you a bunch of answers that you, you know, you did several weeks ago and have sort of like, you know, forgotten about or put it out of your mind. So it's almost like having a collaborator there when you have that sort of a long distance document. Um, and that's what allows, you know, for, I, there was something William Goldman said, good old Goldman that, uh, I just always thought it was perfect. And he's like, how long does it take to write a movie? And he's like, yeah, like six months and then about 10 days, you know? But it's like, yeah, you, you know, you consciously or subconsciously are thinking about these things for months and months in the back of your head. And then at a certain point, you just sit down and start to put it on paper. And once you get in the final draft, like once you're in the software, you're really, it's always tonally better for the final piece if you can really blaze through and put something down in seven or 10 days, because uh, it allows you to stay in the same headspace tonally. And you can always tell when people sort of stray into another zone, at least for me, get the feeling. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I also learned sort of a long time ago that this was something that was helpful to me uh, back in the day and remains helpful to me is to never think about plot as plot. Somebody once said to me, like, there is no such thing as plot. It's all character. And so anytime anybody approaches me with a movie they want me to help them fix, you know, they always think they have a problem that isn't the problem that they actually have. And they always think they have a plot problem and they always have a character problem. And I love hearing, Jeff, the way you talked about that. I especially love breaking it down into the four quadrants because I always sort of get into the second act and just by virtue of the fact that it has more pages in it, I'm always like, oh, 
I'm in the yeah. part with more pages. <laughs> oh, this is the worst part because there's more pages. So I love Where's that my LSAT sort of, test. <laughs> exactly. I love that you kind of break it up into two, two different chunks. Um, I'm going to totally use that. That's, that's really helpful and wonderful. Um, another thing I do once I have that outline, I do a similar thing where I kind of just keep bit, you know, building out the outline until it's like pretty ridiculously complex outline where you're like, Ooh, I should just put this into the final draft. Cause I would have like 40 pages if I did, um, is that I do this system, uh, that I kind of developed a little bit with Katie Silberman when she and I would write together is that we would leave, um, bolds whenever we didn't feel like writing something, even if it was like a line or a whole scene or whatever it is, throw it into bold from the outline and keep going, go, 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 go. Like don't ever stop. And what that did was that we would then have like, let's say you had 30 pages and there were 10 bolds in there. You would then start with your really good morning energy and you'd hit those bolds. You just go back and you'd hit those bolds. And some of them, you still felt like bolding. You still wanted to ignore them. And you kind, we kind of did that until we got to the very end. And at the end, you're sort of like left with only bolds. And that's usually the part where like I phone a friend. I'm always like, just sit with me. Just touch my hand while I do it. Because it's awful. Because it's the shit you don't want to write. It's like really, really bad. But the great thing about it is that half the time, half of the bolds, you don't actually have to write. The reason you didn't write them is because they don't belong in the movie. They they're, they were extraneous. You didn't need them. It was like, it was a section that you thought you needed. And then you once you saw the whole thing together, you were like, yeah, that was, that's bullshit. We don't really actually have to do that. So half of them just get solved because you cut them and it's a delight. That's pretty funny to hear that because, you know, you build up the importance of some moments in your mind and then you can later go back and realize, oh, the, the reason I couldn't figure it out was because it's completely unnecessary. Exactly. And you knew that on some weird subconscious level, you kind of knew that and that's right. why you were avoiding it. A thing that you do learn by doing in many ways though, right? I mean, one, the entire process is something you learn by doing, but that kind of trick, realizing that you don't need those moments in there is something you learn by doing. Um, Jessica, I'm curious to hear on this pilot that you've been working on, about those lessons, things you have learned along the way about the material itself, which I assume when you sold, you had a pretty good grasp on. Oh yeah, um, prior to this experience, I would spend, sometimes I could get caught up on a piece of dialogue for like days and now I'm like, oh, it didn't matter. That scene was never gonna be in the final thing anyway. So like, don't be too precious about certain moments like that. Um, honestly, I've had like a really wonderful development process that I'm like so grateful for and it's made me like, I've come out the other end of it already, like such a better writer than I was when I started it. Um, what was gained during the process? What did you... I have like an amazing team. I'm working with my um, executive producer director is Jennifer Kate Robinson. Um, I'm working with Jenny Snyder-Ehrman um, and Joanna Klein and Rob Lucho at CBS and everybody on my team at the CW. It's just like all of these like really intelligent minds that like, no structure, no story, like can see a problem and like solve it in five minutes. Um, so yeah, I'm just learning from so many people. Um, Dana, you had mentioned uh, Hildy in Home Before Dark as our, you know, the character that is our way into the story. Um, and it's, I'll admit, a strange thing for a nine-year-old kid to be the character as a way into this mystery story. Um, so first I want to hear about that and sort of telling the story through her eyes uh, and figuring out what you could and couldn't tell. But then I want to talk about the way in in general, you know, from Jeff and Jessica both, like 
finding that character who is the way into what is ultimately for all the stuff that you all have worked on kind of strange stories. Yeah. So, so Home Before Dark came about because uh, our incredible producer, Joy Gorman, uh, met the real Hildy Leshak. And she was this extraordinary little nine-year-old girl who um, she would kill me for calling her a little nine-year-old girl. I'm a monster, you guys. Um, she hates that people talk about her age. She's always like, "Why is what's the point of this? It's my work. My work should speak for itself. This is why I love her so much. Um, so Hildy uh, sort of came to people's attention because she had created this little newspaper in her hometown. Um, and she ended up scooping the local paper on a murder and everybody in the town, I, I thought, oh my God, this is so extraordinary. This girl's amazing. The town must've loved her. What a cool thing. It was the exact opposite. The town hated her. Everybody was basically like, sit down, shut up. You're a little girl. You should be playing with dolls and having tea parties. This is none of your fucking business, basically, um, is what a lot of people in the town said, many of them adults. Um, and so, you know, instead of kind of rolling over and playing dead, she asked her sister, her older sister, to record her. And she read the mean comments out loud and then name checked all of the people that had written into her. Um, and so it had sort of gone viral and people had heard of her. And so Joy just thought, oh, this girl's incredible. She has always been a journalist. She doesn't remember a time when she didn't want to be a journalist. And she has so much self-possession and also just this incredible like inward drive to find the truth that it's like, who did that come from? And it's like, it just came from inside of her. Um, and so Joy recognized, oh, this is incredible subject matter. She brought it to me and said, you know, you have to write this story. You were like this nerdy little girl when you were little. Um, Joy and I have been friends for a long time. So she knew that I had basically like begged my parents for a Filofax when I was in first grade. My parents were like, what are your appointments? Um, I was like, back off. I have my stuff. It's really intense. There's a lot of work to do. Um, so you know, she knew I was kind of a huge super dork in the same way and that I should try to write this thing. And at the time I was working on the movie Cruella um, at Disney with Emma Stone. And I had just spent a full year kind of learning how to write this like big, like four quadrant movies where for every scene that you have, everyone in the scene has something that they think is for them. So you're writing for the parents at the same time that you're writing for the kids at the same time you're writing for the teenagers to think it's cool, um, which is really hard to do. And what I learned is you don't do it by trying to be all things to all people. You, you create universality by being very specifically what you are. Like, just go hard at what you are. It's why I think that Pitch Perfect, ultimately, that movie really broke out is because they weren't trying to appeal to, like, dudes, uh, you know, 50-year-old guys. They were like, let's go super dork with this acapella thing. <laughs> like, who cares who likes it? And then dudes loved it. You know what I mean? Like, people just ended up loving it because it was really good and it was really refreshing to see something that just really was what it was. Um so I knew I kind of wanted to try to do that in television. I felt like I had never seen it before. I felt like I've seen four quadrant movies, but I've never seen it done in television. 
Um, <laughs> and then when trying to get this show made, I discovered probably that's for a reason because the only thing anybody said to us as we were like getting ready to start pitching and, and trying to sell the show is, but who is it for? Like nobody could calm down. And just, I was like, it's for everybody. And, and they go, no, 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 you don't understand. You're going to fall in between two chairs. Like it's not going to be for anybody because you're going to try to make it for everybody. And you know, I just had this really visceral memory of being a child and sitting on the couch with my entire family and watching these Amblin movies that I was so obsessed with. E.T., Close Encounters, like, you know, Stand By Me, those kinds of films. And there was nothing about them that I couldn't relate to. So what that there was no little girl my age who was the access character. I was, I wanted to be Indiana Jones. I didn't want to be Marion. So I kind of felt like, well, maybe we can do that. Maybe we can make a show that's a four quadrant movie um, in a television show where the access character is a young girl and we take her as seriously as any big movie takes the male movie star lead. And we, that'll be our quietly revolutionary act is that I'm going to try to get people to like, love this girl and feel like, Oh, I recognize myself in her. Um, regardless of what age you are, what gender you are, any of that stuff. So that was the sort of crazy idea that I had. Um, and I couldn't figure out quite my way into it because when you say like little nine-year-old girl detective or investigative journalist, you sort of picture this like plucky little, you know, kitty show thing. And I never wanted to watch kids shows when I was a kid. So I definitely do not want to watch them now. I don't want to watch them with my kids. I don't want to write them. I don't want to spend all my time working on them. So I couldn't quite figure out what my way in was. Um, until I talked to Hildy and her father, the real Hildy and her dad. And what I discovered is that her father had been reporting on some incredibly dark stuff that was super depressing and awful. And he had written a book on it and had truly gotten depressed and quit his job in New York and said, I can't do this anymore. He was depressed about how journalism was all about clickbait and it had nothing to do with the truth anymore. And he said, I'm done. I can't do it. He quit his job and he moved his entire family back to his hometown and really kind of was like, I'm done. And uh, Hildy, nine years old at the time, just said, look, you may not be a journalist anymore, but I still am. And so that's when she went out and that's when she scooped the local paper on the murder. And it was her pure love of journalism that is what brought her father back to life. It's what brought him back to journalism. It's what brought him out of his 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 sort of funk that he was in. And that part of the story, I was like, oh my God, that hits me like in my guts. Like I always feel like you have to do something. You have to figure out why you care about something, why you are the person that has to write the thing. Because if you figure out why you care about it deeply and profoundly in your gut and in your heart, then you're going to be great at it. Um, so that was my particular way in was just feeling like, oh my God, like on some level, aren't we all sort of wishing we could save our dads? And don't we all kind of wish we could give our parents a second chance at the things that they feel that, you know, didn't work out for them in their lives. So that was my way in. Um, and then the challenge began, which was like, how are we going to find a little girl who can play this and be credible in this um, kind of extraordinary part? And we basically said, there's only one person who can do it. And it's Brooklyn Prince from the Florida Project. And um, she was eight years old at the time. She's uh, so small. <laughs> She's the smallest person. And we were like, God, I hope she can, I hope we can get her. I don't know. There's no way, whatever. Anyway, we ended up getting her and she's like a revelation. She just is so real. Watching her perform is like, 
yes, she's professional. Yes, she learns her lines. She knows her lines. She comes in, she nails it. But what's so extraordinary about her is that, you know, when you're watching an adult actor, you're sort of watching them try to have a feeling or try to try to look like they're having a feeling. The really, really good ones, you feel like they're actually having a feeling. And that's sort of what it is with Brooklyn. She's so empathetic. She's the most deeply feeling, kindest child I've ever met. She has the biggest heart of anyone I've ever met. So when you talk to her about the part and you say, this is what Hildy was feeling in that moment. And then she feels like her dad, she's let her father down and she loves her father and he's her hero. And she feels like she's let him down. You just see her just start to like well up and go, okay, I'm ready. And it's like, she's just feeling the feeling and you're recording it. It's the most beautiful thing. Um, and so that was kind of my way in. That's how I got there. Yeah. And I want to, I just, you know, just to praise the show, um, oh, which I, I really like, um, I think it's a testament to you and to the writers that while she is a precocious kid, she also very much feels like a kid. Like there, I think you did a good job laying stuff into, especially into the pilot, but throughout, um, things that she doesn't understand about the way the world works, about the way that adult emotions work. Um, and it was really, it, it is that stuff that makes it for everyone. We've all been in that situation. Uh, so I, I, I really enjoyed that. I'm so glad. Yeah. We, you know, I felt like we had seen uh, shows and before where the kid was like Doogie Hauser MD, so smart, so precocious, or, you know, had superpowers or could shoot lasers out of their eyes. I, I wanted to do something I'd never seen before, which is sort of have a little girl be a superhero, like just for working hard and not giving up and being like a girl. And so it was so important to us. And, you know, I had a wonderful co-creator, Dara Resnick, and uh, John Chu was super instrumental and an incredible director, Kat Candler, who also worked with us and Rosemary Rodriguez, all these incredible people. It was just so important to us that we whenever we felt like Hildy was doing something that was really kind of like profound or uh, impressive, that on some level, you always remind the audience, she's still a kid. So, you know, you'd have these like beautiful emotional scenes where she'd be fighting with her sister or something. And, you know, just extraordinary to watch. And then you'd go to a super wide shot and you would just see she's like this big. <laughs> Because like, and when all the editors met her, she came in to see us, and all the editors met her and were like bursting into tears and like look, and they they just were like, but she's so small, like <laughs> she's just so little. Because when you're editing her, she's larger than life. I mean, she's one of those incredible actors where you just want to push in on her face all day long, and so she seems bigger than she is. And you meet her, and she's just like this tiny little child. I mean, it's amazing. She's a great person. I'm so glad. Uh, I'm so glad you got her. Yay. <laughs> um, <laughs> Jeff, I want to dig deep on Hill House for a moment. Um, you were there for the entire first season. Um, and I think you faced sort of a similar challenge, which is you have this family of characters. Um, both we see them as young uh, and as, as children and as adults, um, but they're all fucked up in their own ways. Uh, and that becomes a difficult challenge as far as who is the character to introduce us to the world. Do you remember the conversations that went on around finding that character to bring us into the world? Uh, the problem with the Hill House was that it was always designed to be the oldest brother who was going to be your way into the world. And then the audience universally rejected the character and hated him. So it was like they found their way to other characters to make them their de facto leads and seem to prefer them. You know, um, Is that true? 
Oh yeah. I mean, it's definitely, I mean, it's all designed to be Stephen Crane's show. And then, you know, uh, who I, you know, I found the most relatable. <laughs> and uh, so when I, when you, when you read the reactions to Stephen Crane, it was like, ouch. <laughs> so I can help but take this as a personal rebuke. So I did not realize that. Um, it always struck me as he was the way into the show. You know, he was a character who cared deeply who had yeah. you know, these very deep emotions yeah and 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 Mikhail Wiesman did him perfectly I mean it was exactly what everybody in that room imagined which was just a, a guy who was trying to move on and just couldn't quite believe that nobody else wanted to you know I, like I think the thing for us with characters always has been uh and you know they have to be deeply flawed and, and annoying, but they also have to be understandable and not villains. You know, like everybody is the hero of their own movie. So in their minds, they're the lead each in their lives that they're having within the world of this thing. And they have a point of view that makes them kind of right and kind of flipping the script on people and making you sort of like build up to sort of hate somebody for a while and then flip it on them and make you see that they are completely understandable people who are just sort of dealing with the circumstances that they have always seems to be a, a fun trick to play on people. That's another great piece of advice, though, Jeff, about um, screenwriting for movies and also television. When you're ready, when you think your script is done, read it over and over and over again as though you are just the actor who is going to play just one of those parts. Because I've become better as a writer by having to uh, talk to actors, you know, and they'll come up to you and they'll go, Well, why did I say this in this moment if I felt that in the scene that was three? scripts ago and i'd be like good because i forgot i don't know yeah so, and actors are great you, yeah they're great because they really one track minded they go into yes. it and they're like this is my movie i am the only one in this movie even if they have five lines they're the only one in the movie so it's actually weirdly helpful to you know with to think about it that way when you're rewriting to see the difference, I love auditions even because to see people say and do things for the first time is always really powerful and you realize just how much every other facet of stuff, you know, uh, every department brings to these kind of things at the end of the day. So it's just kind of, uh, yeah, I don't know. I think actors, like each one to defend their characters and everybody wants to make them their, the central person in the thing. And they ask you questions as though they are. And it really makes you challenge yourself sometimes because you don't, it's sometimes it's a lot of things you haven't thought about before, but all of a sudden it makes sense because they've been looking exclusively to that point of view. There was a big change at the end of the season of Hill House that was a really divisive thing in the room that, uh, you know, there, there was a there was a character who was rather who was pretty beloved in the series, I guess, that people really liked, who had, who was supposed to die, and uh, it led to a really long term, prolonged, heated argument about whether or not he should die. And uh, I was definitely one of the people who thought he should, and then he, you know, he didn't. So I I hated losing that battle because it felt uh, I think it was like. I think it was great and it was this wonderful emotional journey. But every time that I get to the end, you know, thinking about it or somebody brings it up, I'm always like, yeah, but you should have seen, you know, if, if this had happened, ah, it would really hurt you. I'm curious to hear about those disagreements in the rooms you've been in, Jeff. And like, if it does come to that, if it comes down to a, a room divided, um, how are you making the argument? And then how is, how is it ultimately getting solved? The room that I just did for Netflix had the biggest single argument in one moment that I've ever seen happen. And it was because the restaurants in Glendale were really subpar and we all rebelled against one particular place one day and wanted to go Mediterranean. So, uh, but otherwise, it's like, in my experience at least, nobody is coming there to be kind of like the asshole, you know? Like everybody's kind of coming 
it's like a band, you know what I mean? Like everybody sort of has their layer that they bring to it and then you sort of start to play together and it's sort of a little sound develops and everybody sort of finds their little spot um, that is kind of where they contribute and bring things. And then sometimes it's like, you know, there, one of my good friends, Becca Klingel, from the first season of Hill House, we were sitting there and it was a really big problem about this red room in the Hill House. Like, you know, like, what is it going to mean? What is it going to mean? And one day Becca just kind of walked in and was like, you know, like, sorry for spoilers, people, I'm sure, you know, whatever. But uh, they were like, you know, she was like one day like, well, what if they've all already been in, in the red room and it's different for everybody? And it was like, ah, that changed everything. So I think we've had, in my personal experience, it's been more the other way where people will just surprise you with something so awesome that it changes the course of something and, and you just immediately adapt it. And, and it's, you know, all the little DNA, little cells in your brain start to trigger and you fill in all the gaps and make it work. Um, but in terms, I, I could see, you could see where big arguments were to come. And I've had friends who have left shows apparently because they just weren't getting along with the vision of something, but uh, kind of been lucky enough to avoid it. And I feel like if you can feel one of those things coming, it's probably better to step back for a second and take a big giant, you know, God, sorry to use these phrases, but like one of the old 30,000 foot like glance at it and say, eh, do I really need this in my life <laughs> to, uh, you know, is this really where, you know, where I want to live and die on this particular moment? And sometimes there's been a few where I've really felt strongly about things, but then mostly people seem to get along and, and people seem to buy an impassioned argument that makes sense too. There's some more practical, but I'm only going to be able to do podcasts with Jeff from now on because I'm just going to So this say, is it, our last. This is it. We got to, no, we got to keep doing it. So um, what, you made a good point, I thought, Jeff, with, you know, just in terms of practical advice, because I, I feel like whenever I am out in the world, I'm always looking for more sort of practical advice about how to do stuff. Um, but, you know, that story that you told about the Red Room, what it made me think of is the fact that, you know, I always say to people, sometimes if you have an unsolvable problem, make the problem itself the answer. So, um, like, I was working on a romantic comedy a million years ago, and, you know, it was like about a male escort who was this, like, very sophisticated sort of, like, George Clooney type. And, you know, everybody kept saying, well, how did this guy become an escort? How did he become an escort? Like, we have to be able to answer this so that she can ask him and he can answer. And every single answer I came up with, you know, he was in college, he was putting himself through grad school, blah, 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 on and on and on. No one was ever happy with it. So finally, at the end of the day, I was like, wait, I'm just going to make that the thing. So the character, the woman is constantly asking him throughout the movie, why did you become an escort? And he tells her a story and she believes it. And he goes, ah, that wasn't the real story. And then the next time she asks him again, he tells her another story and, and then says, ah, no, I'm bullshitting you again. There, that wasn't the real story. And then at the very end of the movie, the last line in the entire movie, he says, do you know why I never tell the story of how I became an escort? Because it's boring. But if you want to hear a really good story, I'll tell you about how I got out. And that's the end of the movie. And literally like my biggest problem became the last line in the movie because I was like, I can't solve it. I don't know how <laughs> do this instead. That's, right. um, that's awesome. Jeff, you had touched on, um, you know, what everybody brings to the table uh, in a, an endeavor such as this, such as a writer's room. Um, and Jessica, you had mentioned, you know, all of the great collaborators you have on Obsessed. Um, but what I'm curious to hear about is, you know, Jen and, and all of these collaborators have been working on things for, you know, 10 years at least now, mm -hmm. um, and they have great insights. 
how do you make sure that this pilot is still yours? How do you make sure that it's your voice? I feel like it's, um, it's such a personal story for me that I think it'll be, I'm like very close to the story. Um, I'll vaguely say, I'm, I don't know how much I'm allowed to say about the pilot, but it's about a young woman who is an investigative journalist. She has a, a serial like podcast and she happens to have harm OCD. Um, and I, I have harm OCD. So I don't know if you guys know what it is. A lot of people don't know about it because it's a more taboo um, form of OCD. And the way I describe it is, whereas somebody that has contamination issues, they might think, oh, well, what if I touch a doorknob and get sick? Someone with harm OCD has intrusive thoughts where they see they're triggered by a news report or like a sharp object and they think, what if I'm bad? What if I did something bad? Um, and so this is something I've kind of had, I've been, you know, I've had it pretty much my whole life and I've just sort of recently got treatment for it. And I, it's something, there's a dichotomy because I'm like an outwardly like pretty sunshiny, optimistic person. I'm like a blonde, you know, um, but I have this like dark inner monologue going on. And so for, you know, my whole life, I didn't talk about it with anyone. It was just sort of like suppressing, avoiding the thoughts, like having an occasional panic attack. Um, and when I started to go to group therapy for it, I kind of like, I was like, how am I supposed to talk about these thoughts? And writing this show was a device. It was like my own exposure therapy for talking about it and finding the comedy in it. Cause there's a lot of like, there's definitely, you know, like I'll be carrying a designer bag, but like my exposure homework is to like keep a knife in my bag you know like there's just like weird little details that I'm like having a lot of fun with this character um and hoping that if it if I was so lucky to get it on the air that there would be other people out there that are having these thoughts that are like in high school or you know younger that don't know what's going on and think oh, okay there's like a name for what this is yeah it is as you say something that is so close to you that it does feel like only you could write it which yeah. is what we want from pilots right yeah. like, that's what we're trying to do it's the first um, question they ask you in the room too, like when you're going to the pitch a pilot. So why you? And it was why it's you a little, this material. This one was a little scary to pitch because <laughs> I'm like, I don't want to freak you guys out. I have to tell you, I have murdery thoughts. I'm sorry. <laughs> like, um, but, but it's it was, only ever about people who disappoint me in business. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, and there, you know, we've seen the Dexters out there, but we haven't seen somebody like, you know, who's kind of, I think, relatable. And so, yeah. That's great. Um, well, listen, good luck with it. I can't wait Thank to you. watch it next year. Um, <laughs> I hope you're talking about the pilot. <laughs> oh, Jeff. Oh, Jeff, I'm going to miss you, Jeff. <laughs> oh, no. Sorry, Dana. Someday we all, we'll all be free. We all live here now. We all live on this Zoom call. Um, Jessica, I did uh, ask if you had questions for Jeff and Dana. Is there anything that you had that we haven't covered? I do. Boy, do I ever. And I feel, I have to say, I feel like I'm going to listen to this back a lot because I'm like, oh, the, the rainbow colors, that's so great. Voice stream, so great. The four quadrant thing, like a wealth of new information I'm excited to use. Um, okay. I have a couple questions. Um, what guidance do you guys have for someone who has created a show but has never been in a writer's room like myself? Jeff, you've probably been in a lot more rooms and done more of that stuff than I have. Maybe you take it. 
I, I mean, I think it's, you're in a time where it's not necessarily something that has to happen for a pilot to sell. But I do think that just for the experience of being looked at, I mean, they're definitely going to say to you at some point, Oh, well, we're going to have to bring in a established showrunner or something just, mm-hmm. you know, but you know, by virtue of that, but uh, you know, I, I don't know. Like if something, if the pilot doesn't move forward, use it to get on a staff because it, I think it'll help you just gain insights into how those things get done. And for me, it feels like the, the first couple of these was a really good way to sort of, uh, you know, like um, give yourself a grad school education and how it gets done. You know, it's kind of better to be sitting there amongst it to learn it than not. But um, look, they've been taking people just from movies and, and stuff uh, without TV experience and doing a uh, series. Yes. See, it works. Yeah. I, Dana, I was going to say, I, I think both, <laughs> both of you went from features to sitting into sitting in writer's rooms or even running writer's both. rooms. Yeah, that, well, this is yeah. my question. Um, like what, what do you wish you had known when you first got into those rooms, having worked, you know, as a solo weirdo on features for so long? I mean, I felt like one of the most important things that I learned, and Jessica, I hope this is helpful to you, is, you know, nobody can tell you what version of a boss you want to be. Um, I was deeply and profoundly pregnant on my first show. And it was really schmockward to just want to be this like badass lady man. And I was like, oh, my boobs. Oh, my <laughs> stomach. Like it was just so much lady business up in your face. And I, I couldn't really hide it. And then I had the baby, which I was like breastfeeding while shooting. And like basically what I learned because I sort of had to, because I was pregnant and I went through that pregnant is that don't let anyone tell you what it means to be a boss. I'm nice. I am kind. I'm friendly. I'm loving. I hug it out. I cry a lot. I had to get a t-shirt that says I cry at work because I cry so much at work. And I was like, nobody's going to tell me this isn't powerful. This is a, this is a power move right here because the show was emotional. So it's crying for the right reasons. It was fucking emotional. It's making me cry all the time. So I, what I learned is don't, you know, after the first week or two, stop looking behind you when they ask like for the answer, you have the answer, you know, you do it's, you've been ready, you are ready and just step into it and know that like, you don't have to copy somebody else. You just sort of have to, uh, just be, be the version of the boss that you want to be, not the one that's in any of the books or the art of war or the man stuff or the giant dick stuff. It's like, who cares? Be your kind of boss and it will trickle down from you. And then the people around you will respect you for that. That is invaluable. Thank you. Also, if you're not crying, you're not doing it right. You definitely have to be crying. That's exactly right. If you're not crying, you're not doing it right. Because if you don't care that much, what Mm -hmm. what are you doing it for? (laughs) Thank you, Jeff. Especially when you get to the end. I mean, if you don't, if you're not writing endings and sitting there weeping, you know, then then you definitely have probably not been able to convince anybody else to feel an emotion either. Ugh, Jeff. Uh, Oh, well, yeah. We cried a lot when we would work together. You can always feel it coming, too. It's very sad. (laughs) (laughs) I think. So good, though. After 500 episodes of this podcast, if people can't take that lesson, if you're not crying, you're not doing it right. (laughs) <laughs> um, there's no helping them. Um, I want to I want to wrap up as we always do by asking you what you are watching on television these days. Some of us have now a lot of time to watch television, some more than others. 
Um, what are you watching? What's getting you excited or inspired? What are you talking about with your friends, your family, your loved ones? Dana, we're going to start with you on this. Okay. So um, I am doing, thank you so much for asking, a bit of a double feature between the entire like seven seasons of the West Wing, um, which is going very well, you guys. <laughs> I mean, I'm deep into season two and it's going very well. <laughs> God bless Alice and Janney. Um, and Peaky Blinders. So I love Peaky Blinders. I'm obsessed with it. It's, I love the way it's shot. I, uh, Kat Candler, one of my amazing directors turned me on to it. It's so interesting to watch. It's shot, uh, my favorite kind of shooting, which is not super gratuitously. Don't get me wrong. There's a gratuitous slow-mo in like almost every episode, but I'm I kind of love slow-mo, so it's okay. Um, but it's shot in that way where the camera work is in the service of what it wants you to feel in the moment. And that's like my favorite thing in the world. Um, it's just delicious. I highly recommend it. Great. Good answer. Jeff, what are you watching? Uh, my wife and I always have a show we're watching together at any given time. We get about an hour a day from the time the two-year-old goes down to the time that we pass out. And uh, oh so it's been the good place lately. Uh, we're just finishing season three and really enjoying it. It was not at all what I expected it would be. And then my little solo watch, when I steal time to watch something on my phone, I've been rewatching Larry Sanders' show, which has been <laughs> an amazing tonic for all the nonsense of our world right now. It's been really fun to watch. That's a great one. And it, it never comes up because the, the podcast post-dates Larry Sanders a little bit, but it's a great rewatch too. Like it was way ahead of its time. Yeah. And just to think of Gary Shandling and how he, how things ended for him. It's just, you know, he really was that guy. So it's very interesting to see. Fascinating. Um, fun, like inside show too. If you haven't seen it and you're looking for some sort of like showbiz show to watch, it's a really deadly accurate showbiz show. <laughs> totally. Uh, Jessica, what are you watching? I just started Home Before Dark, which I've only seen the first one, but I loved it. And it came per my roommate's glowing recommendation before I even knew that you were going to be a guest today so Yay. Um, um it's very very well done and i'm really excited to keep going um and i am watching friday night lights because i never have before and i high schooled in texas i was classical before so it's just like i love it i'm so happy i have it right now that's a good um, one friday night lights is so delicious and <sighs> The and Coach Taylor, hot dad, is like exactly what I was trying to do in Home Before Dark. Besides yes. all of my like really auspicious desires in that show, I was like, I gotta get hot dad. In hot this show. dad, <laughs> hot, he is the hottest. Is that Kyle Chandler? Because I've never watched, but Flanagan tried to get Kyle Chandler into every movie that we've ever made. I mean, because he's a delight and a half. Who doesn't love that guy? Ben, what are you watching? Am I allowed to reverse podcast oh. you? This is never, this is unprecedented. Oh my god. <laughs> Um, I just finished watching Dickinson on Apple, which I loved. Um, and um, my wife and I are on season nine of Cheers. Oh, oh wow. <laughs> Frasier is my like work background, all time life thing that Comfort. I listen to when working. Yes, I can, I can do a one man show of every <laughs> Frasier episode if anybody is ever interested. I so. feel like that's what we should do next time we all get together. 100%. Not a problem. Anytime, uh, night or day, call. Just give me a season and an episode number. I can't uh, wait. Thank you all so much for chatting today. This has been terrific. I learned so much. I really appreciate it. I did too. I feel so like I'm going to go back and listen. You guys are all so smart. I learned so much. <laughs> I'm going to go to so school much. and be a forest ranger now. <laughs> I think this is enough. It was Stay wonderful to meet you guys. 
Thank you all. You too. It was fun. Fun. Stay safe, everyone. Thanks, guys. Forever. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcast.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook. Ew, ew, ew.